So tonight, I would like to look at uh, selfing and anatta. Anatta, which has been either translated as no self, and which now Stephen translates as not self. But I think what is important for us is, in a way, how do we self? And what is, how can this idea of not self help us? But first, I'd like to look at this sutta, uh, the Kema Sutta. And here you have a, a monk who is talking to another monk and actually saying something which later the Buddha said, yeah, yeah, this is, this is right, this is the right way to see things. And so what he says is that what can be released through appropriate wisdom when the thought does not occur to him or her, there is no one better than me, there is no one equal to me, there is no one worse than me. So basically it's saying that in a way one has, is considered to have certain attainment in terms of wisdom, in terms of the practice, when one can really experience for oneself that there is no more this experience, this thought, this feeling, I am superior to, I am inferior to, I am equal with. And equal is interesting. I mean, what's the problem with being equal? I mean, this generally is our aim in this democratic society. We must be equal, you know? And, um, but I think it's interesting because it's looking at this tendency we have to compare ourselves to others. <coughs> and so in a way it's like our identity resides how we see the other. So it's interesting that it don't just even reside in how we see ourselves. But our identity resides in seeing, oh, he's better than me. I am better than him or her. Oh, we are equal. And you might have had that experience at some point to think, ah, he makes or she makes the same mistake as me. Great. You know? <laughs> so I am not alone in making mistakes. You know, sometimes we enjoy being equal in our mistake. We might possibly enjoy less being equal in our success. Generally, if I'm a little better, or I hope so. So it's kind of, in a way, looking at that, the fact that as soon, as soon as you compare, as soon as you define in connection to other, you are actually identifying yourself. Even if you're looking at equality, you are identifying yourself. You are defining yourself as this. Oh, great, we make the same mistake. So basically you're identifying yourself as somebody who makes mistakes, but they also do, so that's fine. 
And if you feel inferior, in a way, and that generally is very painful, because if you feel, well, it depends. You see, you can be feeling inferior in two ways. You can feel inferior, and you can feel you are missing something. They've got something I don't have. And because of that, then you miss something. And then it's generally very painful. I had a friend many years ago, that's what she used to do, to only look at what other people had, she did not have. Until finally one day, it it totally shifted. And then she started to look more at what she had. And then she had, a, I would say, much more pleasant possibility of pleasant feeling too. But you could feel inferior, and by feeling inferior, be really looking up to somebody who is superior. And then if you become disciple of a great superior being, then that gives you identity. There is also that aspect of it. Oh, I am, but look at my great teacher. You know, I have the greatest teacher in the universe. And so although you're inferior to the teacher, it uplifts, in a way, your identity. Or if you feel superior, you feel superior and then, in a way, looking down on others. But in all these things, we're actually, as soon as you do that, as soon as you compare, In a way, you fix your identity. And so in a way, it's kind of to see the, this, it doesn't mean that, you know, somebody is not better at doing this and that. But to see as soon as there is this feeling, I am inferior, I am in call, I am superior, there is grasping at identity. And then generally there is, in a way, limiting around a certain type of identity. Then I wanted to to look, I mean, this is a very famous discourse. This is Anatta, La Kana Sutta, which more the discourse on not-self, or it's also called the Pancha Vagi Sutta, which is the Sutta of the five brethren, the five ascetics. And this is famous because it's a second discourse reputedly the second discourse the Buddha gave. So at the time, he really did not have many disciples. And he only had those five guys, you know. So he just delivered the turning the wheel of the Dharma Sutta, and then he delivered the second discourse. It was actually a discourse on not-self. And basically what he says there is actually basically looking at the aggregate, at the conditions. And so basically he says, form, the body, is not self. If the form or body were the self, this body would not lend itself to disease. I could say to it, let the body be sus. But I cannot do that. So then the body is not myself. And then he he goes again, the feeling is not self because I cannot direct it as I want. Perception is not self because I cannot direct it as I want. Mental, 
thought are the same. And also consciousness, I cannot direct as I want. And for that, it is not myself. And then he continued looking at, but what do you think? Is a body permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. And then is what is impermanent? Unsatisfactory. Indeed. And then the Buddha said, but is it fitting to look at what is impermanent, what is unsatisfactory, subject to change as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am. I think the last one is what we need to look at. This is what I am. And I think what the Buddha here is looking at is how when we grasp and identify, then generally we reduce ourselves to a certain identity. So to say, in a way, if you grasp at physical sensation or if you grasp at certain appearance of the body, and then you say, this is what I am. Because the problem is that quickly we say, this is only what I am. And recently I was, uh, as it happens when I travel, I was catching by accident a musical uh, program on TV in some hotel, trying to find the time, actually, trying to find the time. And the, the video of the music was amazing. I was captivated. I thought, wow. It was a rudimental all night. And basically, because this group decided that it's not fun just to have a video of themselves, they tried to find videos making of something which is interesting. And then they decided to make a video of uh, Kurt Jaeger, who, is, uh, who used to be a guy who really uh, was uh, quite uh, gifted with BMX bike, doing all kinds of somersault and all kinds of things. was also into bikes. And he had a big bike accident, motorbike accident, where a car went into the motorbike, and he really was really hurt in many, many different ways. And he was in hospital for a year. And so basically the video is about how he recovered, managed to get back on the BMX, even though he had a, a leg cut, and how it all kind worked out in the end. But what is very interesting about Kurt Jaeger, who now has become an actor and is in Sons of Anarchy as Greg the Peg, and he, he said, like, you know, it was, I read documentary on him, and he said that when he was in the hospital, he was stuck. I mean, you know, the body was totally broken in many different pieces, and he was so tough. It was so painful that you could really feel that it was like, you know, it was unbearable because his identity was reduced to this body who was broken into lots of pieces. And actually what saved him during that terrible time in the hospital was his friend and his family who actually never gave up on him. Like, Kurt Jäger was really ready to give up on himself many times. And he's very honest about that. And he said the only thing 
that kept me going again and again in the darkest time was my friend. And basically, I think what happened is that his friend did not reduce his self-identity to his body. They did not think Kurt Jaeger has just become, he was a good friend, he was good with BMX, but too bad, the poor guy, I mean, he's finished, you know. Why do anything with him? But no, they, they, it, he was a friend, and they really knew he was more than a body. And to really, they're trying to really keep uplifting his spirit, his mind, his heart. And through that, I think they helped him to see, I am not just this broken body. <coughs> I am more than that. And so in a way, what is beautiful at the end of the documentary say, please, don't give up on your friend if they're really ill. Don't give up on them. Even if they tell you to give up on them, don't do that. Be there for them. And so to me, what it shows is that, of course, we can uplift our identity. But I think at different moments in our life, it's very easy to just say, I am just that. And if you say, I'm just this broken, ill body, then actually it becomes very constricting. Or about consciousness, the Buddha says, we are not just our consciousness. That's an interesting statement. Myself is not just what I am. My consciousness is not just what I am. But that actually the self is form all the aggregate, meeting the environment. And this made me think about a book I read recently, which is called Why I Jumped. And it was translated partly by David Mitchell, the writer of Cloud Atlas because he has an autistic son. And this book, Why Jumped, is written through a relatively elaborate process by a young autistic Japanese, 13 years old. And so basically the book is about why he behaves as he behaves. And so we say why he does things which is difficult for others, why he does things which are weird but seems to make him happy. And he really explained all this very clearly. And what he says, basically his message is, I am not this autistic consciousness. Because basically what he says is that a lot of the time when he do negative things, difficult things, he doesn't intend at all to do it. There is something within it which just, just do it. And he's kind of like kind of trying to kind of follow it and he really can't do much about it. And whenever he talks about this difficult habit, at the end of each time he says, please don't give up on us because you see us doing this weird thing and you think we intend to do it consciously. We don't. Don't give up on us. And again, here what he is saying is don't reduce ourselves to just this action, which is difficult, which is problematic. I am more than an automatic action, which is kind of 
conscious, but a consciousness I'm not power of in that moment. And I think, in a way, that's what the Buddha is saying here. He's saying that we are constituted by these different conditions. And that you cannot reduce yourself to any aspect. And so one could say that this anatta, I would rather, instead of saying anatta means not self, I would say anatta means that we are a flow of conditions. That ourself is actually the inner flow of condition meeting the outer flow of condition. And so within that, this flow of condition, for example, that is Martine, is relatively constant because tomorrow it's very unlikely that I'll be a pink giraffe. (laughs) But it is possible that I could have a heart attack. That's more possible than the pink giraffe. So it's relatively constant, but at the same time, of course, it's changing. Like all things, it's changing. And in a way, what I found interesting is um, many years ago when my grandma was still alive, my, uh, one, my sister's son had a, a baby. And so we have the picture of my grandmother who must have been like about 88 at the time, totally looking, actually she was very, lots of, uh, she really looked like a Native American actually at the time. She had this very beautiful face. And there was that really beautiful old face. And next to it, there was this tiny little one-year-old born baby. And when I see the photo, I know My grandma, too, was like the baby. But, I mean, the change, you know. And when you see the baby and the grandmother face, you think, but is it the same self? I mean, when she was a baby, she had a self made up of the flow of condition that formed her. And then 88 years later, I mean, it's kind of, in a way, you have a continuity in some way. And at the same time, you have this amazing transformation over the years from that tiny baby to that ancient person. And so, in a way, I think the the practice we do is to actually, often we have this idea that the meditation is about being above conditions. And that's why when I hear the word transcendence, I think, wait a minute. Because I think often we think that we must go beyond condition. But I don't think that's what the Buddha had in mind, actually. I think what he was thinking about was that actually we are a flow of condition. And so the practice is to know the condition that forms us and how they impact and are impacted by the condition outside of it. And so, in a way, what the practice becomes is an exploration. And so, then instead, 
Because I think that's what we do a lot. Instead of reducing mm. ourselves to any one condition that forms us, we start to look at our identity as something much more what I would call multi-perspectival. And so then this practice is a lifetime practice of discovery. And so I think what we can explore during the rest of the retreat, but also in daily life, is how does it feel when actually we're not grasping, reducing our identity to any one condition. Generally, actually, we have a feeling of spaciousness. And we also can have a feeling of stability. But when we start to reduce what I am to one of the conditions, it's like, whoosh, there is this reduction. And then we can observe that as we sit in meditation, as we go about the day, when suddenly we reduce ourselves to a thought. You see, suddenly you have a thought. Let's say you have this thought, I am hopeless. Then you reduce your identity to that. I am hopeless. I am a hopeless person. This is hopeless. Once I had this experience many years ago, suddenly I had this thought because I was frustrated and things were not working. And suddenly I found myself standing on the pavement, paralyzed. Because I grasped at the thought, reduced myself to the thought, I am hopeless, this is hopeless, everything is hopeless. And then I thought, with creative awareness, wait a minute, <laughs> you are not hopeless. You can read, you can write, you can do this. And then, and then suddenly the identity from stuck in one thought becomes the potentiality of this flow of condition. Or we can reduce ourselves to an emotion. I am a sad person. I am an angry person. I am a happy person. And basically what you seem to say is that I am always sad, always angry, always happy. But nobody can sustain happiness, anger, sadness. They're just a condition that appears because of other conditions. But if we, if we kind of decide, I'm, I am angry. I am an angry person. I can be as angry as I want because I cannot stop myself. I mean, that is not going to be much fun, especially for people around you. I mean, I met um, some years ago I met a, a practitioner, and she was saying it was so difficult. Uh, her father was basically very angry, and I'd never really kind of uh, questioned that, questioned that identity he had as an angry person. And so all his children had kind of dropped because he would be angry all the time. Like, you, you know, you wanted to take him to a restaurant, he would be angry in the restaurant. 
You take him to a movie, he would be angry in the movie. So in a way, you could not take him out anywhere because he would generally create trouble. And she was saying, you know, like, finally she was just going to see him once a year. But even she had trouble, you know, thinking of the yearly meeting because it was going to be so angry. But at the same time, I think it's important to see we are not stuck. We are not just sad. I recently read this uh, very interesting story because I was reading something about uh, drug addiction and I discovered there is this term called contingency management, which I never heard of before. But has been going on for some time, connected with uh, Skinner. And so they have this new method it's a kind of experiential thing, when they take people who really are generally quite hardcore case of drug addiction and have also other problems with it. And in this case, this man who had heavy drug addiction was also very angry, very angry a lot of the time, creating trouble everywhere, even with the people who tried to help him. And so this contingency management thing is actually a bit weird. But it's kind of work. That's what I find interesting. And so the way it works is that you have a lottery. You have a lottery just for the guy. And so he has a little pot. And in it, he can pick things. And so he might pick a little thing for $10. He might pick a little thing for getting a radio. He might pick a little thing for whatever. And at the same time, they check his urine to see, you know, is he drug-free or not. So if he's drug-free, he gets the lottery. If he's not drug-free, no lottery. If he has many days drug-free, then he gets more and more stuff, better value. If he's not drug-free, then he goes down to the first one. So it's kind of... But actually with this, I mean, I was thinking, come on, this is not going to work. I mean, a lot of people criticize the, the method. But I was reading the report from the study And what was interesting is that it worked. And I think it worked because the lottery thing changed the feeling tone. Why is the guy angry most of the time? Very likely because he has very negative, painful feeling tone. And then this lottery thing, every time he wins something, he's happy. (laughs) And, I mean, a nice feeling tone is nice for everybody. And then at the end of the project, he continued, actually, to be kind of like a reformed character and rarely not angry anymore, and et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, this is interesting because you might think this guy is stuck. First, he's stuck, he's a drug addict. Secondly, he's a very angry person. He cannot control himself. And when he had... But what I found beautiful is that they thought, let's try. Let's try this new method. And actually, he said, it's so nice. I mean, I feel so much better. And because he felt so much better, well, he was a better person, and et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, it's, it's a thing. If you reduce your identity to an emotion, then you get stuck with it, in a way. And then it makes it last longer than necessary. Or we might be... 
identifying, as I said, with the body, either with physical sensation, either with illness. And so I'm not saying that painful physical sensations are not difficult. Of course they are difficult. But if we reduce ourselves to them, then it gets very painful. If we reduce ourselves to illness, it's the same. I was reading the book of a lady who was not into meditation, but she got uh, cancer, diagnostic for cancer, and she realized if I worry about it, it's going to be a very difficult two years because it was a curable cancer. And then she looked around and she heard about mindfulness, that if you did mindfulness, you were less worried. <laughs> and she did the mindfulness, and she said, yeah, it makes such a difference. Because basically the mindfulness worked on the second arrow, kind of identifying with the condition and then fixing that and then worrying about that. Then she was much more able to creatively engage with it. And another thing we do is actually identifying with a quality. I am a good person. I am a bad person. But we can do this with others. Oh, he's a good person. He's a bad person. And generally what we mean then is that they're always good or they're always bad. So we fix the identity. I am always good. I am always bad. When actually quality are not fixed. We might have certain tendency, of course, but it really depends on condition. And nobody is totally good or totally bad. I remember many, many years ago, when I lived in England, many years ago, and there was a little discussion, and I was on the side of the discussion. I was not really partaking in it. And then somebody said, Margaret Thatcher is evil. I thought, wait a minute. You know, I mean, I don't agree with her politics and different things, but I did not think she was an evil person. I mean, it's kind of you identify. That's all this person is. Or that's all I am. So, I mean, if you decide you're a bad person, then, you know, might as well be bad all the time. But the problem also with thinking I am a good person is that you have this impression, this is my identity. I'm a good person. And actually, you do bad things, and you don't see them. That's often what happens with this kind of like, you know, either teacher or priest or thing like that. They look like, you know, they're fantastic. And then you realize they've done all kind of all the bad things. So it's a kind of very interesting, this kind of impression, this identity. When actually, again, the identity is formed of the different things, the condition, what we cultivate, what we don't cultivate, what happened, who we meet. It's kind of very processual identity. And then with identity, there is another thing. And this is a feeling. That's what the, the feeling we have about the self. So how do we feel about the self? I mean, 
intellectually we know that, I mean, if you have meditated long enough or you have been in Buddhist circle long enough, you know anatta. I don't have a fixed self. Yes, I know that. But is it the way we feel? I mean, when we are self-conscious, when we think everybody is looking at us, you see, or when we think somebody is doing something because of us, when a lot of the people, time people are doing things because of them. But it's interesting, this feeling of self-consciousness. In one text, it's described as if you are in the middle of the market and suddenly everybody is pointing at you and saying, thief, thief, and you have not stolen anything. But you feel, oh! And then you really feel that you have a self. But actually, that's what I think is, in a way, interesting also to look at. How do, how do we feel this self? What, what, what is it? Because sometimes we really feel oh, very self-conscious. So, I mean, where does this come from? We don't have a self, but, I mean, it feels like there is one. And that's the thing. I think we have to look at this. I think it's kind of like a, possibly a, a survival evolutive mechanism that, of course, we need to be self-centered. Relatively so, because if I don't take care of myself, nobody is going to do it. I mean, nobody is going to eat for me. Nobody is going to breathe for me. I mean, that somebody wear clothes, don't do anything to my body needing clothes. So in a way, this organism has to take care of itself. So up to a point, it has to be relatively self-centered. But the question is, is it like 50% taking care of oneself? Or is it 99% self-centered and thinking everything that happened is because of me? Because then there is a difference between am I the center of the universe, or, I am, or am I the center of my universe? This is a little different. Because if you think the cent- you are the center of the universe, then, I mean, it's a little megalomaniac. <laughs> but often we feel that way, when actually we're just the center of our universe. Fair enough. Mine. <laughs> yeah. So, in a way, the, the idea is to kind of try to dissolve this, you could say, self-absorption. And what is interesting with that, that the more the self-absorption goes, going down to the 50%, then the more we can see others but for themselves and not for what we want for ourselves. Well, I think often the way we relate is in terms of our interest. When I think one of the beauty of the meditation, and I'll talk about this tomorrow, is about how through that dissolution of the self-centeredness to a certain degree, then we can really open to the others where they are. And then we can be enriched by meeting them, by sharing with them, by encountering another 
flow of condition so that I'm not so stuck in my flow of condition. And then the question also with that is that if you have the feeling, because sometimes you have this feeling here that there is something there, and it's nearly like you feel there is a little cube here, and you could nearly say you feel there is a pin cushion. Often I have the feeling it's like there is a pin cushion here. And whenever, especially if something bad happens, somebody says something, somebody does something, it's like a pin going into the pin cushion. And it gets stuck. You know, and then later on you, t- you move it a little. Oh, yes, that was painful. And a few drops of blood. Oh, yes, yes, that was, oh, that was painful. Or you could say that what we encounter is like arrows. You know, like when we are children, they are suction-capped arrow. You know, you, and then, and it's a bit like words, things that happen are like suction-capped arrow, and then we covered, then we become a bit like a hedgehog. With all this, you know, the words that, are, that we heard, this, that we saw, that, and then we have all this. And then we meet other with their suction cap arrows, a bit hard to kind of meet together. And I think what the Buddha is trying to say, there is no pincushion. There is no place where the suction cap arrow can stick. Because things are processual. They arise and they pass away. And then the question becomes, do I grasp? and identify, or do I encounter and creatively engage? And then the sense of self is much more processual. So somebody was asking me about creative engagement. What did I mean? By creative engagement, I mean that there is enough space, that the self-centeredness is less fixed and kind of Sometimes I feel this selfing is like we have these walls around us where we protect ourselves, and then we look just a little above it. Oh, you're there, behind your wall. Okay, okay, but I am there, you know? And that actually the meditation is the wall totally gone. There are no walls, nothing to defend. And then we are with ourselves in a different way. So you see, if you, the walls go, if the pin cushion go, if the uh, uh, suction cap arrow go, no target, then actually we can creatively engage because we encounter the conditions as they arise. Instead of the past condition or the future condition, is what is going on now? How can I deal with this situation now? Should I just accept it because I cannot do anything about it? Should I change something within myself? Should I change something within the condition? And that's what I mean by creative engagement. There is no one way to do things. It's what you bring in that moment to the situation. One example that I can give is listening. If we listen, when we listen, often you listen, but actually you're thinking of what you want to say, which is so much better, 
And so you wait for the person to stop, or you look in the right direction, but you don't listen, so when they talk to you, you really did not get it, or you overreact to the, what the person said. But creative, engaged listening, in that moment, you just listen. You don't do anything else. You don't prepare. You're really present to what the person say. You're really there. And when they stop, you respond. And a lot of the time you are surprised because you say something you did not think about before. Because you actually respond to that person in that moment in those conditions. And then often you think, wow, that was great. You surprise yourself, but then you can't remember because it was in that moment. This happened to me a lot. I think, oh, yes, and then it's gone because it was just in that moment. And that's what I mean by creative engagement, that we come in a way to the situation, and I think that's where the meditation is so important, with the stability and the openness so that there is less reactive selfing and actually, it's more what I would call a stable, open, process yourself in that moment meeting another human being, another flow of condition. So, and I will leave you just with one little exercise, if you want. So, you might not really have to. So, by now, I presume everybody has more or less found their place. You know, everybody has their chair, their cushion, their bench. But I presume if somebody by this time, suddenly you come in the room and they're sitting in my place, in my cushion. I mean, we all think very quickly, this is mine. And then what you can do, if you want to play around, is this flow of condition is using this cushion. This flow of condition is walking. Etc., etc. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. I Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just noticed today that as I was doing that, that um, um, sort of uh, different images or, or remember, things just started arising that had not arisen throughout the week. It just seemed to invite a, a surprising range of, I don't know, just ideas, images, and I would just sort of observe them. And Some t- yeah, no, you see, yeah, the thing with this question, people will, uh, will experience it in many different ways. And uh, personally, I never had this kind of thing happen to me. I just did it and nothing special happened, <laughs> apart from the development of the questioning. But some people report what you just described. 
that they see it, and then if they say, what is it? Suddenly, some people get lots of images, or some people get ideas, or all kinds of things. And so, I think a lot of it generally is flotsam, jetsam. And then sometimes, either one image, either one thought is very significant. You know, and then if it's really significant and you can experience that, then you just stay with it and then it goes too. But not everybody experiences that, but some people do. So people have different ways with this question, what it, in a way, resonates, how it resonates within the person. So it's just a really open-ended practice as to how it affects different people. Yeah. In terms of the practice, the idea, I mean, the traditional idea, is really to develop a sensation of questioning. That, that's all. That's all the idea is about it. And so they, then you have a whole technical language about the mass of questioning, about this and that. But I think the main idea is to develop a sensation of questioning, like the whole body and mind is more into a questioning mode, but at an experiential level, not intellectual level, and in terms of the effect, what I found over time is that it really makes you more flexible. It really has this interesting effect of becoming more flexible, becoming more multi-choice, seeing more choices. So actually, I feel it has the effect of dissolving a little the, the fixity. Because generally, if we ask a question, we have the answer, so we fix something, next question, next. When here, it's kind of like go against the grain a little. What is this? And just staying with that, I think, can have quite a powerful effect on the whole uh, flow of condition. Yes? Yeah, another thing about the questioning meditation. Um, at first, it seemed to be working well, but then the question, what is this, kind of just became a meaningless sound of playing over in my head. Um, I wasn't sure what about that. Yeah, no, again, it's kind of like, again, people will be with it in different ways. Some people, they do it, and at the beginning it seems quite energizing, and then it can become a little mechanical. What is this? What is this? What is this? And it does not have uh, this uh, taste, questioning taste. But I think it's like any meditation. It's very hard to keep the, the brightness of it the whole time. So then if it becomes mechanical, we can pass through that and then it again can be alive. But otherwise one can go back to just listening of the breath. And sometimes I found if people have another practice, I don't think that they should necessarily just do this one. And what they find is that they might do the breath or listening and then suddenly it will pop up. What is this? And then it brings a certain quality. So I think it's again... If it's too mechanical, you might go back to something more experiential, come back to it later, or stick with it. It's like with any practice. At some, at some point, it's a little kind of, um, you could say, blend. And so you kind of have to kind of a little work with it, and then generally it kind of rejuvenates itself and becomes bright again. But you have to see. Yes. What you said in the talk about having no fixed self as a stream, what do you think is happening with people who 
who is controversial, who have uh, disassociative problems or multiple personality problems. Yeah. Trauma. You see, that I think is very different. I think in a way, when the Buddha, well, the Buddha is saying we don't have, like that's why I talk, there is a certain continuity, but within that continuity there is change. So what I'm saying is not that there is change every second. I think this is one we have to be careful with the idea of change. It doesn't mean that change is every two. I mean, there is some school which look at it that way. But I think when people practice that way, it can be very enervating, just as you say. And so, personally, I think the idea with the not-self is really in order to to be able to be with this flow of condition, part of the meditation process is to develop stability. And that's why the calm is very important. Because the concentration, the anchoring are going to bring the stability. The question is going to make us see the self as more a flow of condition, but also knowing there is a certain continuity. And what you describe is a place where actually there is no stability. And because there is no stability, then you have a very fragmented sense of self. And in a way, to feel healthy, we need to have a stable sense of self. And the Buddha said it in a different sutta, that actually part of the practice is to build a confident sense of this processual self. So he never negated the self. He negated the reducing of the self. That's where he goes, you know, uh, my body, this is not what I am, my sensations, this is not what I am. So he's, he's not saying they don't exist. It doesn't mean I don't exist. It doesn't mean the self doesn't exist. But the self cannot be reduced to any one of the components that forms it. So that's what he says. And I think, in a way, part of the very important function of concentration is to cultivate calm, is to cultivate stability. And then when we inquire, it's within a very stable framework. And for that reason, it's extremely different. Because I have uh, dealt with people who have uh, had nervous breakdown and things of that nature. And uh, what you have is really no stability. There is no place they can anchor. And then... Yeah, yeah copying on the, the previous question, but I was curious maybe sort of specifying it, people with a narcissistic personality disorder, for instance, yeah, there's stability in the sense that they have this disorder. But what, what, because um, you were saying about this, this young boy who was communicating, autistic boy, that he was, um, what he was feeling, what, what is the, the Buddhist view of what's going behind the scenes of, for instance, well, that I would say is somebody who goes into the 99% self-centeredness. Okay. You see, when you, you cannot see beyond yourself, you know, like you're so grasping at the self for whatever reason that actually you cannot see outside of that. So that's what I would call the 99% where you're really kind of totally self-centered fixated and you cannot see anybody else but yourself. So it's kind of like, it's nearly like the self is bigger than you then. And the, the, the self then is kind of like even outside of yourself because then it englobes everything. 
becomes myself. And then there is this very kind of, uh, from a very self-centered point of view. Yeah? I had an interesting experience a few weeks ago. I went to a 50-year school reunion. And most of us had not seen each other for at least 45 years. The only image we had of each other was that long school photograph of the row of the school boys in jackets and short trousers and such like. What came into the room, of course, were people like me, tubbing, balding, some jackets and so forth. And the question very much came to mind, what was it that had continued through those years? In, in that our lives away from that school was greater than the time we had together. What was it that we could see in each other in that room that, that linked back to 1961? Then, no, I think this kind of thing is, is, in a way, an experience of that, of the kind of the, the changing nature, and at the same time a certain continuum back to the pink giraffe. <laughs> yes? And then, la. Um, that was really helpful because I've been practicing with these topics and I've noticed that when there's an I am, when I can see the I surfacing, there's always clinging or grasping. I haven't found one happening without the other. And is it the same thing? Is clinging... <laughs> it, it seems, I, I would not say they're identical, but they seem to really go together. I think, in a way, you could say like um, a ten, like you could say a, a, a tense sense of self comes with grasping. So it seems to me, in experience, what we experience is that grasping comes from a, a certain type of identification. Because you can have a sense of self which actually doesn't grasp. And you can have this experience in meditation and sometimes it feels a bit weird and people say, but I felt so different. Uh, but it's just that generally we feel there is this kind of little solidifying, fixing. And when we experience ourselves without that, it's kind of very spacious and you think, wait a minute, I don't exist anymore when actually you exist. But the way you feel yourself is very different. The same way when you, sometimes you listen to music or sometimes you are with a friend and you just totally feel, in a way, in communion. And you feel like yourself is not tied. There is no competition. There is, it's just meeting. And so I think this is why I'm saying it's not that there is no self, but you could say there is a constricted self sense of self, which, which come with the clinging. Mm -hmm. And there is an unconstricted, spacious sense of being, you could say. Yeah. So that's what we're aiming for. Huh? <laughs> the spacious kind. Is that what we're aiming for? Ex exactly. I mean, you could say more of the time. Because I think... But I think it is possible also. I think it's not as complicated and as mystical as we think. You know, it's kind of... As that Zen master say, you know, one moment you can be really stable, open, and totally there in this spacious way. And then something happens, it's like the whole thing goes, oops. And you can feel it more. And actually, personally, I find that I can move from when I go like this, okay, okay. And then I make it open again. I can see it. I can, over time, you learn to feel when you kind of start to do this, and then Consciously, actually, you can. Okay, I don't need to do this. 
And I think we'll stop here to have a little walk-in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.